BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, October 3rd, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you could subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they have a great offer for our Inquiring Minds listeners. You can get a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So for a long time, I have been frustrated by grammar. And I don't mean that I'm bad at grammar. I mean, I'm a writer. You kind of need to know this stuff. But what I'm frustrated by is the seeming incoherence of many of these so-called rules that people tell us we are supposed to follow if we are to write well. A lot of these do not make sense. I will list just one of them. The idea that you cannot split infinitives. In other words, you can't say, I'm going to really take apart stupid grammar rules right now. Instead, you have to say, I'm going really to take apart stupid grammar rules right now, and that itself is stupid. And that's why I have to say that Steven Pinker's new book is the book for me. In the sense of style, this cognitive scientist and linguist, who is also a writer of gorgeous prose, helps us understand how to use language powerfully, which includes understanding which style advice is worth following and which advice is just pedantic. Pinker is our guest this week, and here's a clip from our interview, and this is where he explains why in every generation, people claim that language is declining and being cheapened, the barbarians are at the gates, people are breaking all the rules, and that's just wrong. Language changes, and uh, it's not legislated by a committee, it's not um, set in stone like the rules of Major League Baseball, uh, but it's uh, an emerging and evolving consensus. Correct English is whatever careful writers tend to use in their own writing. And as the language changes from beneath our feet, we feel the, the, the sands shifting and, and always think that it's a deterioration. Whereas everything that's in the language was an innovation at some point in the history of English. Uh, if you're living through the transition, it, it feels like a deterioration, even though it's just a change. Andre, what do you think? 
You know, I when I was reading his book to prepare uh, for this episode, I nearly fell off my chair when he started going at Strunk and White, <laughs> you know, which to me was like the Bible of how to write well. Um, and he makes some really good points. Um, but, you know, of course... And also, I'll just take issue with his one little comment there. You know, the rules of the Major League Baseball are changing. I mean, we're now including uh, uh, video enough. video, and looking at, at how... Anyway, but uh, that's besides the point. But I, I think he's hitting on something that's really important, which I think that there is an emotional component to how we speak. And people get emotionally involved when someone breaks a rule or, you know, somehow language changes. And I think that's really interesting. We usually think of language as, you know, being very kind of in, in rational and people even, you know, make this false assumption that language being in the left hemisphere, it, it's, you know, in, akin to this idea that left hemisphere is logical and analytical and so on, as opposed to emotional. And, and yet, you know, we know time and time again, that those two things are not separable. Totally. People just don't like change. And that includes their language. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but uh, before we get to science in the news this week, I wanted to invite our listeners to come to a live taping of our show. Uh, this is going to happen as part of the Bay Area Science Festival in San Francisco. The date is October 28th, and we are doing a double bill at the rickshaw stop with Story Collider, which is also another awesome uh, podcast. And so they can go to bayareascience.org and search for Inquiring Minds uh, to get to uh, the place where you can buy tickets. And uh, or you can just click on the link in the description of this episode. But it's going to be a really fun evening. Uh, I'll be telling a story on Story Collider, and I'm sure uh, it'll be somehow embarrassing to me because I'm sure I will reveal far too much. Uh, so if you're into that kind of thing, do come by. Uh, but then also we will be interviewing Adam Savage, which is kind of awesome. So I'm really hoping that this particular event is going to sell out and tickets are already selling. So if you want to go, please do. Um, don't delay and go and get your tickets. So with that, let's talk about some science in the news. Chris, what's been on your mind this week? Yeah, so I got something that uh, ticks me off again, or at least something that I think is way oversimplified. Right? So, you know, there's this thing in journalism where it's all about data, 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 and people make these charts and they send them around and it's somehow seen as super objective and really explaining things that you couldn't just get from reporting, right? And so there's websites that specialize in this, like 538. So recently, 538 did one of its data crunching exercises, and it found out that, wow, people who are not white care more about taking action on climate change. And they produced charts to this effect. And one of the charts showed that this is true even when you control for political party, so non-white Democrats are more concerned about climate change than white Democrats are. Uh, and of course, all the people who sort of titter at data journalism sent this around because they found it profound. And to me, this is actually, I mean, it's, it's true, the data are true, but this is a classic example of using a limited data analysis to miss what the big picture is. So let me tell you what the big picture is. In the field of risk assessment, there is this well-known phenomenon. It is called the white male effect. And they didn't talk about this right when they put out these charts. But what this means is that white males are less concerned about a wide variety of risks, including environmental risks. So to say that non-whites are more worried than whites about climate change is not actually to get to the core of what's going on. The real story is white males... Uh, it's just as interesting that women are more concerned about the environment than men. And so when you look at environmental risks, 
what you actually see is it's white males who are the least concerned, followed by white females, then followed by non-white males, then followed by non-white females who are the most concerned. And why is this happening? Let's actually get some causal explanation here. It's not actually all white men. It is white men who are conservative, who are highly individualistic in their values, so they're the opposite of communitarian, wanting to take care of everybody in society, and who are highly hierarchical in their values, which means they're the opposite of egalitarian. So these people are at the top of the totem pole. They are privileged, and they they dismiss a certain kind of risks risks that are disruptive to the status quo if you're going to address these risks, like climate change. And everything I'm saying is based on research by Dan Kahan at Yale and his colleagues who have studied this white male effect a lot. So the real storyline here is very different. Yeah, non-whites worry more about climate change. Same goes for women. But the reason that's the case is likely the ideology of privileged people in our society who like the way we currently do things and don't want that to change. So if you think you took apart their figure of, you know, when they just looked into Democrats, uh, that you would then see this effect wash out if you divided it by gender, for example, then would you would you do you think that that effect of um, white Democrats being less interested in the environmental issues than non-white Democrats really is driven by males in that subpopulation? Or do you think it's driven more by people who are more conservative within that subpopulation? Well, I I guess what I'm saying is, is that the the effect that is being, you know, they're seeing the surface, but they're not seeing the iceberg. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. seeing the tip of the iceberg. And so what what the, you're actually seeing is an ideology that is prevalent among uh, white men. And so there's, there's a gender component to it, there's a race component to it, and there's an ideological component to it. And they're all sort of at the center of it. And to, to so you need to know about all those components to understand it properly. I guess that's what I'm driving at. It would be really interesting to see if there was some other way in which we could look at privilege that is outside of, you know, sort of the white male thing. Like if there was another group of people who were in power um, and, and whether they would show a similar disregard to some the issues like this uh, or, you know, if it's something more cultural. I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, I think you could just switch societies and probably see something similar. I think this is how it, this is how privilege works in this society, right? Yeah. So... But it's a it's a great point uh, that you're making, Chris. So Thank so you. thanks for enlightening us. Thank you. Um, Not, that, now I want to emphasize: this is not to say right that these gaps that are based on race or gaps that are based on gender are not important. It just is to say that there's something bigger underlying them, and so it's important to see the big picture. Yeah, and I th- yeah, I think you're exactly right in saying that even even the the article on 538 was suggesting that there's something to do with the fact that these are vulnerable populations, right, that are going to be more affected by the effects of climate change. Uh but you you're hammering down even more specifically that this this goes to, you know, exactly the the subgroup uh that is least worried is a subgroup that might you argue uh be least affected. But time will tell. Uh, so one of the things that I've been thinking about this week was is a paper that came out in Science on Friday, September 26th, that really talks about whether or not the water on our planet predates the sun. So the question is, you'd think, well, of course, you know, since our planet was created in its current form after the sun was born, so too must the water be younger. This seems like a pretty stupid question. But of course, it turns out that the elements that our world is made up of could be very well older than the sun. And the question of water is interesting, because of course, life began in the water. So the elements that make up life, if they are in water that is a Available in areas that is not on the 
Earth, uh, that suggests that life is possible or, or, or more likely, I suppose, to have also evolved in other parts of our universe. So this is kind of an important question for astrobiology. So what these scientists did is they looked at the relative ratio of deuterium and hydrogen. And these are two isotopes of each other. And essentially, by analyzing this ratio, they can figure out how old that particular water uh, sample is. Uh, and it, when they did that, they found that the water on the Earth actually is older than what we would expect if it came from the activity of the sun. So that does suggest that there is, that the water that created life on Earth or that provided the building blocks for life on Earth actually existed out in the universe before our sun was born. And so that also suggests then that there are probably bits of that same type of water elsewhere in the universe, which I think is pretty exciting. Yeah, it's it's great. And it seems like every bit of new science related to extrasolar planets, which I will include this as being part of, even though it's not finding a new one, points to a higher and higher probability of life on extrasolar planets. Yeah, and I think it's just so cool how you can take something very much terrestrial. So you can take a sample of water uh, from the Earth and you can run it through some computer models and some very smart physicists and you can figure out the answer to a question that is so profound. Yeah, I, I didn't know you could do that. But then when you think about it, it makes sense because if you can date the Earth, right, <laughs> using yeah. radioactive methods, and of course, you can date other things. So, uh, but I'd never, th I'd never thought uh, to think about this question, but physicists are doing it. And wow, I mean, you know, it, it's just so sad that Carl Sagan isn't still here because all this evidence that he would have, uh, he would have made much of uh, is now come only now coming out. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Steven Pinker. Once again, we wanted to remind you that today's episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to the classics. Basically, what Audible lets you do is listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want to from going on the metro and listening to them to a very long car trip. That's not all specifically for listeners to this episode of the show. Audible is offering you a free audiobook. You simply have to go to this URL, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Let me make an Audible book recommendation for you. This one is an easy recommendation to make and an obvious recommendation to make. Right over there at Audible, right now, they have Stephen Pinker's new book, The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. The same book we have been discussing on this show. So go over to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and get one of those free books. Do it now. Stephen Pinker, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's excellent to have you. So, you know, your new book, The Sense of Style, I mean, you are a, a psycholinguist, a cognitive scientist, and a uh, graceful, best-selling writer. It seems like this is the book you always had to write in some ways, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I've had the idea to write it for quite some time, and the, uh, the last straw was getting a uh, piece of my writing back from a ham-fisted copy editor who was following a lot of the uh, uh, rules robotically, clearly not understanding their rationale. 
And I thought, uh, gee, someone's got to write a manual that actually explains why you should follow certain guidelines and when you should follow certain guidelines, uh, rather than treating them as the Ten Commandments. So I thought, okay, now's the time. Yeah, well, I just cannot thank you enough. I feel like this book was written for me. I'm a writer. I've always been suspicious of style manuals. I've always battled copy editors. The people who tell me you can't split infinitives, the people who say you can never use the, the passive voice, often these things are simpler and they just often make more sense. Uh, that's right. And the uh, the prohibition against splitting infinitives, uh, that is, um, converting to boldly go where no no man has gone before to uh, to go boldly or boldly to go, that that's the, <laughs> the paradigm case of a bogus rule. Uh, no good writer in English has ever followed it consistently. If you do follow it, it makes your prose much worse, as in, you know, boldly to go where no man has gone before. I mean, give me yeah, a break. It's terrible. And the great irony is, if you go to any uh, dictionary or, or uh, style manual and you look up split infinitive, they all say the rule against splitting infinitives is bogus. So this rule so kind of levitates in midair. There's actually no support even from the style manuals. Uh, but people seem to think that it's a rule. Uh, it's uh, become something of an urban legend where everyone thinks that somewhere there's a prohibition against split infinitives, but no one, no one could find them if they tried. Well, it is time to finally kill this myth. So there's a split infinitive for you. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yes. <laughs> so um, you show in the book, though, that this is a recurrent thing, uh, that in every era, people say that language is declining and that people are breaking all of the rules. Uh, it doesn't matter what era they're in. They just lament it. Yes, and it's for, for a number of reasons. One of them is that there are so many bogus rules in circulation that, that kind of serve as a, a, um, a tactic for one-upmanship. There are a way in which uh, one person can prove that they are more sophisticated or literate than someone else, and so they brandish these pseudo-rules like not splitting infinitives, like uh, not ending a sentence with a preposition, like saying, uh, insisting that it has to be um, better than he rather than better than him. There's several dozen of these bogus rules that, that are out there. A uh, second reason is that language changes, and uh, it's not legislated by a committee. It's not um, set in stone like the rules of Major League Baseball, uh, but it's uh, an emerging and evolving consensus. Correct English is whatever careful writers tend to use in their own writing. And as the language changes from beneath our feet, we feel the, the, the sands shifting and, and always think that it's a deterioration. Whereas everything that's in the language was an innovation at some point in the history of English. Uh, if you're living through the transition, it, it feels like a deterioration, even though it's just a change. So just to give an example, the uh, uh, famous elements of style by uh, Strunk and White uh, says, never use uh, the verb to contact. It's uh, pretentious. Uh, say you're going to call someone or you're going to mail them or you're going to phone them. Never say you're going to contact them. You kind of look at that now and you say, what, what, what on earth were they talking about? Uh, not only is to contact nowhere near being pretentious or stuffy or formal by uh, this, by today's years, but it's an indispensable verb because sometimes you really don't want to specify how someone's going to get in touch with someone else as long as they do it. And that's why, of course, contact, which just happened to be a new term in the era of, uh, of E.B. White, uh, passed into the language and, and is completely unexceptionable. Finally, there's a third reason why people always think the language is de deteriorating, and that is uh, there's a well-known psychological phenomenon that people confuse changes in themselves with changes in the times. 
And as you get older, uh, you, you change in a number of ways. You, uh, among them is you become more careful in your use of language. And as you start to notice uh, language more and more as you get older, you think that you have stayed the same and the language has changed, where it's actually it's you who has changed. And uh, that, that's another reason why people um, are always thinking that the language is going downhill. Right. It doesn't. It, when you think about it, though, being being so essentialist about language, I mean, it, it can't make sense because look at the era we live in. I mean, everyone everyone is creating new internet technologies, new internet companies. So Twitter has generated all kinds of different language that you have to know in order to use Twitter properly, right? Absolutely, and that's and that's always been true. Before uh, Twitter, there was television. Before that, there was radio. Before that, there was the telegram. Before that, there was the uh, the printed word, which of course was an innovation in its own day, widespread affordable newspapers and pamphlets and books. And even when there isn't, uh, the language has to change just because there's nothing that's going to keep it firmly in place. There's, there's no rule book. There's no uh, police. Uh, it, it's kind of a big wiki that people are constantly contributing to. Well, I want to talk a little bit more, uh, for the, just, for, just briefly, because I think it's a lot of fun, about dumb rules that you don't necessarily have to worry about. Um, so I was, I was thrilled by the defense of the the passive voice. And for the listeners, I'll let you first define what that is and why it doesn't suck as much as all of us <laughs> right. writers. We were taught to believe, which might be, which is a passive construction. We were taught that. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, the passive is a voice. It's not a tense, uh, as some people sometimes think. It's the difference between the uh, man bit the dog and the dog was bitten by the man. And it's uh, um, the, the semantic content is held constant, who did what to whom, but the order of the words changes. And it's true that academics tend to overuse the passive voice. You know, on the, beta, on the basis of the data which were collected, uh, the null hypothesis can be rejected. Um, and a lot of stuffiness in academic prose comes from overuse of the passive. But it is definitely not true that you should avoid the passive across the board. It's often indispensable because um, you, uh, a good writer puts the familiar given um, known content early in the sentence and the newsworthy stuff at the end of the sentence. Now, that can sometimes clash with the demands of English syntax, where the, uh, in an active sentence, the subject comes before the uh, object. Sometimes you're, all eyes are on the object and, um, in the preceding conversation, and so it's natural to begin a sentence with the object. In that case, the passive voice is the better choice. So, for example, let's say you've been looking at uh, uh, you know, a mime in the park, and you say, hey, you see that mime? Uh, he's being pelted with zucchini. Uh, by by angry onlookers, uh, the passive is natural there because the mime has been the topic of the conversation, and to say onlookers are pelting the mime with zucchini uh, would be choppy or uh, it, it would disrupt the flow. Uh, the passive is also useful because it allows you to um, delete the the subject, the the uh, doer of the the uh, action. So if you um, read a news item that says that uh, helicopters were used to put out the fires, you really don't need to know that some guy named Bob was piloting one of the helicopters. <laughs> it's just not, not relevant information. And the passive allows you, uh, by saying uh, the, the helicopters were flown in, you can forget about who's flying the helicopters because you don't care who's flying the helicopters. Uh, now, both features of the passive can be abused. 
Uh, the the famous example is the uh, the, the non confession mistakes were made, which is uh, very appealing to politicians trying to evade responsibility, and the um, putting the the done to first is as I mentioned before a common sin of academics because they forget that good writing narrates a an ongoing um, uh, set of actions. And they instead work backwards. They know what happened, so they start off with the affected entity, uh, and then they throw in uh, who who caused the changes and afterthought. And that that does lead to stuffy writing. And that's why a general rule of thumb is try not to overuse the passive. But to turn that into an uh, across-the-board rule, never use the passive, is just going to make your writing worse. And that's why, ironically enough, a lot of the advisories uh, in the style books to avoid the passive are actually written in the passive. Like uh, Strunk and White say, you know, many a team, many a, a sentence can be made more lively by switching from the passive to the active. That actually has a passive in it, made more lively, and they they didn't even notice themselves. Uh, and likewise, Orwell in Politics in the English Language, the other thing that's assigned to every writing, every freshman composition class, uh, he says one of the sins of writing is that the, uh, the passive is uh, used in preference to the active. And what he just did is he used the passive in preference to the active. So that kind of hypocrisy shows that it's very easy to overstate rules. And if you don't explain what the basis is behind the rule, you're going to botch the statement of the rule and give bad advice. So I think, yeah, I think there are moments you have to certainly use uh, the passive. I want to give you another case where you, you say that it's okay to do this, and yet I'm afraid of doing it in actual formal writing. I might do it in speech. And so this is when you have a, a disagreement between the subject and the pronoun. So I'll give you an example. Uh, when a person I don't know starts trying to tell me what to do, I tell them to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The so-called singular they. Right. Um, so what about that? <laughs> so there, um, you know, uh, even careful writers and speakers often use that construction. Uh, I, I give the example of President Obama, uh, who said no American should be discriminated against because of their co- the color of their skin. And a lot of purists would say that that sentence contains a grammatical error, that uh, no American is singular and uh, there is plural. Um, but... It, it, in fact, the so-called singular they goes way back in the history of the English language. It was used by Shakespeare four times. It was used by Jane Austen uh, several dozen times uh, and returned to the attention of writers and editors starting in the 70s when uh, more and more publications mandated non-sexist usage. And so you couldn't get away with uh, what writers used to do, which is to use man, for example, as a term for all of homo sapiens, to use he as a uh, generic pronoun to embrace both sexes. Uh, As that option was removed from from many publications, writers scrambled to find an alternative, and singular they was one of them. And and that has now uh, returned with sensitivity of how to refer to uh, transgendered individuals and the LGBT community. And, and again, they is a convenient way of, of skirting that dilemma. And so I, I, my advice is not to get, uh, not first of all, not to consider it a, uh, a heinous error. It isn't. Uh, one could even argue that it isn't really a 
uh, a clash of, of number agreement because the they in those constructions, everyone returned to their seats, is actually not really a pronoun. It's more like what a logician would call a variable. What does everyone return to their seats mean? It means for all x, x returned to x's seat. And the they is just basically x. Uh, and so it's not surprising that that construction is so tempting. Uh, and just to pay attention to whether it really jars the ear or whether it can pass by unnoticed, as it did in, in uh, Obama's declaration. Something we've dealt with repeatedly on this show, and we've dealt with it by trying to edit it out, is jargon. Right? <laughs> yes. So how do you, um, you know, as a psychologist and a linguist, how do you explain the fact that every profession seems to generate its own? <laughs> well, some, some amount of jargon is indispensable because it just gets tedious to spell out a complicated term every time you use it when you're speaking within a community uh, that is well familiar with that term. So if you're a biologist, you don't have to spell, you know, explain what a transcription factor is every time you use uh, the, the refer to that concept. And for that matter, some technical terms then pass into common parlance, like DNA, which used to be, a, of course, a highly technical term. Uh, the problem is uh, a psychological phenomenon uh, called the curse of knowledge, namely that it's very hard to imagine what it's like for someone not to know something that you do know. And people tend to forget that what, what is um, common knowledge in their subculture is completely unknown outside that sub subculture. And so people tend to overuse jargon, uh, thinking that everyone will know what it means when in fact it's only their narrow little clique. Uh, so that's the problem with jargon. We, you can't do without it. The problem is that people uh, use it when they have no expectation that their readers will understand it, or they should have no expectation. It just doesn't occur to them. People are, are uh, just too egocentric, self-centered. They don't try to put themselves in the shoes of a generic reader, but just assume that the people they rub shoulders with are uh, generic human beings. But that actually isn't off, often isn't true, right? Because you also point out that, and you're not the first person I've heard point this out, that even in, in your field, sometimes you don't understand the jargon. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a self-serving excuse of a lot of um, professional people, academics, bureaucrats, lawyers, uh, that, well, uh, the reason we use so much jargon is uh, our work is so specialized uh, of course, we need we need our own jargon. We're talking about things that uh, no one else talks about, and we need a way to refer to them. But the reason that I think that's that's self serving is that even within uh, a subfield, very often I'm baffled by my scientific peers using terms that they just assume that I know, but that are obscure even within my field. Uh, I give an example of. Uh, uh, a paper in a, a, a general review journal, a journal that's supposed to make material available to a wide um, a circle of, uh, of, of scientists, and it referred blithely to the rabbit illusion. Now, you know, I've been in this field almost 40 years, and I'd never heard of the rabbit illusion, so I had to put down the article and go look it up, and, and I found it, and it really is, is pretty obscure, even within psychology. Uh, but the authors just assumed that they knew what rabbit illusion was, so 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 must everyone else. 
Okay, something about rabbits, I guess. It's, uh, I mean, <laughs> I've it's, certainly it's, never it's, heard of it. It's an, it's an interesting illusion. I'm glad I learned about it, but it, it would have been nice if they explained it. It's basically, if you, if you close your eyes, someone taps you on the wrist three times, then on the elbow three times, then on the shoulder three times. It can feel like a set of taps running up the length of your arm, like, sort of like a hopping rabbit. So that's kind of interesting. It says you don't experience things in real time, but your experience of a later event can be affected by an earlier event. But, you know, you could say that, you could explain it, and uh, it'd be, you'd, you'd be no less scientific. In fact, you'd be more scientific, because then your readers could decide whether your claim about consciousness really is supported by that uh, illusion, or whether there's some other explanation. If you just refer to it using jargon, and then describe it generically, as they did, like uh, a post-stimulus event affects the perception of a stimulus, then your reader doesn't have the tools to even evaluate it on scientific grounds because the description was just so vague and abstract. So contrary to the uh, self-serving uh, reassurance that you know, we have to use jargon because we're, we're so scientific, it actually makes you less scientific because you're hiding the actual details that would allow uh, someone to evaluate the scientific claims. So concreteness not only helps uh, clarity of expression, it helps the actual conduct of the science, I argue. Uh, let's talk about some some practices that you say make writing better, and you give cognitive reasons for this. So one of them is shorter sentences, <laughs> economy. Yeah. Well, it, shorter sentences... Um, with a proviso, it's not simply the number of words in a sentence, because often uh, good authors can use um, very long sentences, and they're perfectly comprehensible. I give an example from uh, Rebecca Goldstein, who I'm married to, uh, in, in one of her novels, where the sentence is 300 words long, and it's perfectly understandable, because of the way that the words are arranged into phrases. And it's really the the geometry of the the, the phrases that determines how easily a sentence can be understood more than the sheer number of words packed into it. Uh, you know, in the old days, they used to teach kids how to diagram sentences. Uh, and linguists still still do that. They, they draw tree diagrams. And I, I'm not saying that a writer should literally diagram their sentences. Ha ha, a writer, their sentences. Um, but, uh, but if you're aware of how your phrases are packed together, you can avoid tortuous, um, convoluted syntax. In particular, if you've got one phrase packed inside another, which is packed inside another, which is packed inside another, you're going to lose your readers. But if you have uh, a, uh, an embedded phrase kind of at the end of uh, the phrase that it's inside instead of in the middle, uh, then it can be quite easy to process even long sentences. The, the bit of advice that is useful in terms of sheer length is that when there are unnecessary words, in general, your sentence will be better if you uh, omit them. And this was the great, the prime directive of Strunk and White, omit needless words. And it's, it's still good advice. Instead of saying we uh, affected a cancellation, if you say we canceled it, that's really easier to understand. Uh, and, and in general, getting rid of as many uh, little grammatical words uh, of and to and, and so on, and just stating things in uh, nouns and verbs directly will, in general, make your make your prose better. Also, I think you you make a stand in favor of imagery, uh, which I think obviously helps the brain process things. <laughs> Absolutely, I mean we really are we're, we're primates. We're we're visual animals. Uh, we have 
overlaid on our primate brain the ability to uh, think abstract thoughts. But even those abstract thoughts are pretty much grounded in concrete images. And the, the biggest sin of, uh, of, of professionalese and academies is writing an abstract summary instead of uh, concrete imagery. So an academic will write, uh, the participants were tested under conditions of good to excellent acoustic isolation. And uh, translation, we tested the students in a quiet room. Now, notice that that, uh, that abstract verbiage adds nothing in terms of content to a quiet room. Uh, so why not just say a quiet room? It's just that much easier to understand. Uh, or the, to go back to the example I mentioned before, uh, a post-stimulus event affects the perception of a stimulus. What the hell does that mean? But if you say the... the uh, the, the, the later tap on the shoulder affects where you feel the earlier tap on the elbow. Well, that's completely clear because uh, we think in terms of taps and elbows and early and late. We don't think in terms of stimulus and effect and, and, uh, and so on. And, and, and good writing teachers have always appreciated that. I know that one, one writing teacher says that he, he tells students, uh, can you drop it on your foot? Uh, if so, it's concrete and that's the word you should use. Well, a tap is, I mean, everyone knows a tap is a feeling, a quiet is a, a, a sound or the lack thereof. They're all things that are, that are very relatable. Exactly. And uh, the reason that um, academics and other professionals, um, you know, bureaucrats and lawyers and, and so on, tend to uh, float up to the abstract level is that they're so familiar with it. Uh, they use the word in terms of, you know, they don't have to be reminded what a stimulus is because they kind of already know it. But what they're thinking about from their point of view is that it stimulates the person and so they, or stimulates the brain, so they call it a stimulus. Or likewise, the, the guy who tests the, the students in a quiet room, why did he pick the room? Well, he wanted to isolate the, the testing from external sounds. So he thinks in terms of the purpose to which he has put it and conveys it in the language of his own private concerns, forgetting that the rest of the world isn't trying to design an experiment. They don't care why he chose the, the, the room. They care that it's a room. And uh, it's another manifestation of, of the curse of knowledge, the, the difficulty of imagining what it's like not to know something that you do know. So you pull all of this together into a picture of a style of writing that you embrace and you call the classic style. To me, it's it sounds very consistent with a sort of wave of popular science books that you yourself, have, but also many other great writers that we've talked to on the show, are authors of. Tell us what the classic style means. Yes, I, I lifted that concept from a couple of literary scholars um, who have been influenced by cognitive science, uh, Francis Noel Thomas and Mark Turner. Uh, and they identified uh, a number of different styles in, in uh, prose writing, each of which is based on a particular scenario of how the writer and reader are interacting and what the writer is trying to accomplish. Uh, and one of these styles, they single out as classic style. They, they uh, credit it to the great 17th century French essayists like Descartes and La Rochefoucauld. And in classic style, the two metaphors for um, uh, underlying writing are uh, seeing something in the world and conversation. Namely, the writer has noticed something in the world. It's objectively there. 
Uh, he is positioning the reader to see it with her own eyes, which she can do because the writer and reader are equals and the reader is capable of seeing it if only she's given an unobstructed view. Uh, and the style is conversation. So using conversation, you direct someone's attention to some something in the world. And that's the underlying model for what you should be doing when you're writing in classic style. You might say, oh, that's obvious. Like, how else can you write? But there actually are a lot of, of completely different ways of writing. In uh, what they call self-conscious style, which is very common among academics, the goal is to prove that you are not naive about the philosophical foundations of your own enterprise. That is, an academic is always petrified uh, of... Uh, being accused of, of some kind of naive realism, of thinking that you just open your eyes and you see the world as it is, as opposed to having to interpret it with your theories and being mindful of your possibility of error and the tentativeness of your conclusion and the difficulty of what you're studying. And so academics are constantly apologizing and hedging and uh, equivocating all of which is, in some sense, reasonable. An academic shouldn't be arrogant about the certainty of, of uh, his own knowledge, but it makes for dreadful writing. And in good writing, you set aside all of this fear of being naive about uh, knowing anything, and you state things as if they are there in front of you for all to see. Now, it doesn't mean you believe that things are in front of you for all to see, and then you just open your eyes and you apprehend reality. But uh, you, you maintain the fiction that you're doing it in order to improve the quality of your prose. Yeah, well, this is what journalists do, too. I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, why would you, why would you relitigate every time you write the question of whether uh, the earth is really there every time you take a step? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, feel, it feels there, right? I mean, but everyone kind of just assumes it's there, so we're going to take that as rendered and we're going to go on to. I think that's exactly right, and I think journalists and uh, competent writers have always known this without being able to articulate it, and the value of uh, Thomas and Turner's book, Clear and Simple is the Truth, is that it, it kind of lays, it lays out explicitly what I think um, good, clear writers have always uh, unconsciously known. And, and I remember when I made the transition from academic to popular writing, that was pretty much what I was doing. I didn't realize it at the time, but having read prior writers... Uh, in that style, that's what I uh, unconsciously picked up. And there are other kinds of other styles too. There's there's introspective or reflective writing where you try to share your your um, personal uh, inchoate, ineffable reactions to an event, your own emotional response, and, and many essayists and places like the New Yorker do that. Uh, and that's very different from. Um, writing as if there is an external world that your reader can see as well as you can, if only you position them properly. Well, let me just ask you one, one last rather big question. I mean, where, where is our language headed and how can a person, you know, make sure that they uh, remain abreast of it? You know, people are tweeting out YOLO and uh, some people who are older don't even know what that means. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, wh where are things going and how do we, how do we adjust? Uh, I, they're, they're not going in any direction. I mean, I think language is more of a language changes more of a random walk than a uh, progression. And there's no real sense in which today's English is 
I don't know, you know, better or worse or more sophisticated or less sophisticated than the English of uh, 200 years ago or 300 years ago. It's just, it's just different. Uh, languages drift around. Uh, the change, the particular varieties of language that are used in uh, social media and texting or so on are, are a complete red herring. It does not mean, uh, I get this question a lot. Well, are we all going to start talking in, in abbreviations like IMHO or are people going to start writing in little, you know, smiley faces and emoticons and emojis and so on? Um, the, 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 the confusion is, uh, failing to recognize that everyone always has a variety of styles that they use in different media. Uh, you don't speak to your you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or your, your little child the same way you address an audience, uh, or you compose a letter to the editor of the newspaper. Uh, you don't use the same form of language when you're texting with two thumbs that you use when you're composing a uh, eulogy at a funeral. There, uh, people always command a variety of styles, and just because they use abbreviations when they're typing with their thumbs does not mean that they're going to pollute the language with those abbreviations. Any more than when telegrams were possible were popular uh, uh, more than a hundred years ago, people stopped. Uh, using prepositions and uh, articles in their speech because they omitted them from their telegrams when they had to pay by the word. Got it. Well, I think I think it's good to have a, a view of language that is not of the get-off-my-lawn school of language. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, just treat it as functional. Absolutely. Well, listen, it's been a fascinating conversation, and you're going to help me look at my own writing uh, a little bit more closely, and I really appreciate that, and I think our listeners will do that as well. So thank you so much, Stephen Pinker, for being on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Wow, it was a really fascinating discussion. And the thing that I kept coming back to is this uh, is this notion that as our culture changes, so too, of course, do our grammatical rules, uh, even though we're taught as children. You know, most of us really only are taught grammar in middle school uh, and so forth in our schooling. We don't really rethink uh, the rules as we get older. It's not like we go to a continuing education classes for grammar, uh, although maybe we should. It sounds like because with every decade, the grammatical rules seem to change. Uh, I'm thinking here in particular of our use of pronouns and how as our notion of gender has evolved to be more inclusive, uh, so too must our language to reflect that worldview. Uh, so, you know, I, th I think in some ways we might want to consider giving a primer to people as we get older, uh, as, as time wears on, on what is the latest thinking on how we should be speaking with each other. Right. And it's not just our grammar, it's our words. And I think that for anyone who has lived through the growth of the internet and watched that happen, we've all had to learn new words. We've have to we've had to learn tweeting and friending and you know, all those kind of things. And we've done it without any problem. And so, you know, there whoever it is who announces the word of the year usually will pick one of these internet words because it was so influential and it just came on the scene, took everybody by storm and now everybody uses it. That's what he's talking about, right? People are constantly generating new language, rules, words, etc. So what we shouldn't be is absolutists about language. We should understand what it is that we're doing and why we're using it and what we can get out of it. And so I, I find it a very refreshing take and very sane. And, but on the other hand, too, you've got this notion that a lot of people hold on to that the way that you use language reflects your intelligence or your education. So, you know, people advocate that 
understanding how to speak and write well is very, very important if people want to get by in society as, as they get older, etc. I'm thinking of people, you know, kids in particular. Uh, and yet, nowadays, you know, there are some things that have become pedantic. So for example, you know, when I was a graduate student, data were always plural, you always said the data are blah, 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 right? Yeah. Yes. And now, <laughs> Everyone uses data is and it's starting to, of course, it grates on me every single time uh, that I hear that. But, you know, m- time and time again, as I write, uh, you know, editors change it. And 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 their reasoning is people are going to be surprised if you use the pr- plural with the word data and you want people to read seamlessly what it is that you're writing, especially if you're writing for a, you know, a lay audience and not not get hung up about things like that. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's hard for me to let go of that because I feel that, you know, my colleagues will read that and be like, you know, Indre, you, you know, what are you thinking? You know, have you forgotten your scientific roots? Uh, so, you know, there's, there's that component to what he's saying too, is a sense that, you know, w- to what extent is our ability to speak and write tied to a, a sort of display of our intelligence? And is yeah. that going to change over time? I should have asked him the data question. I, I think that one is in the middle of a transition right now. I don't think there's yeah. a right and, right and wrong right now on that one. But I think we're going to lose those of us who are convinced that data should be you, plural. You might very well. <laughs> you might very well because to hold that position, you have to be within, sort of within the scientific world, understanding fully what data are. Are. Right? But, <laughs> yep. uh, but most people aren't. And for them, data is. Yeah. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank all of you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Podcast. You can see a live taping on October 28th at the Bay Area Science Festival at bayareascience.org. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. You can send grammatical rules. Yes. Yes. Yes, Send Uh, us your pet peeves when they come to grammar. This episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they have a great offer for Inquiring Minds listeners, a free audiobook, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Andre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.